This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. Unnecessary, unwarranted, unacceptable. Strong words from Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland and Ontario Premier Doug Ford after President Trump announced that he was reinstating a 10% tariff on Canadian aluminum. With both countries trying to chart a path to post-pandemic economic recovery, and with elections underway in the United States, and possibly in the offing in Canada, I'll speak with two of my McCarthy Tatro colleagues, one of them a trade law expert, and the other a former member of Parliament, about what tussling over trade could mean for the Canada-US relationship and for the future of the Canadian economy. Law in the Time of COVID-19 explores the law and policy of pandemic response. We're looking at how governments, organizations, and individuals are managing the impact and meeting the moment. And because it wouldn't be a law firm podcast without a disclaimer, here's a disclaimer. McCarthy Tatro is providing this podcast as a public service, if we may say so ourselves. It may contain legal information, but it does not contain legal advice or a legal opinion, recommendation, or statement of policy of McCarthy Tatro. Here's episode 20, Pandemic Protectionism. In March 2018, which feels like about 100 years ago now, U.S. President Donald Trump imposed tariffs on Canadian steel and aluminum imports. He did so under Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962, which empowers the American government to introduce tariffs on articles, quote, imported in such quantities or under such circumstances as to threaten or to impair the national security. Steel and aluminum from Canada and Mexico and the European Union apparently qualified. Canada responded in kind, with countermeasures that came into effect in July 2018. Nearly a year of negotiation followed before the two countries agreed to remove their respective tariffs in May of last year. For more than a year, all seemed well. Then, on August 6th of this year, President Trump announced that the aluminum tariffs were coming back, 10% on imports of non-alloyed, unwrought aluminum articles from Canada. The Canadian response? $3.6 billion in retaliatory measures on American aluminum and goods that contain it, including on articles from presidential election swing states like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. What will this mean for Canadian businesses that were already contending with a deadly pandemic and the lockdowns that have been imposed to contain it? And what will it mean for the trading relationship between Canada and the United States, which had been recovering after a steep decline earlier this year, and which was supposed to be on surer footing after the new U.S.-Mexico-Canada Free Trade Agreement came into effect on July 1st? To help us understand the law, policy, and realpolitik of cross-border trade in the time of COVID-19, I spoke to two of my McCarthy Tatro colleagues. Martha Harrison is, among other roles at the firm, a partner in our international trade and investment law group based in Toronto. And Paul Zed is a former member of parliament and parliamentary secretary and is counsel and a strategic advisor at McCarthy Tatro. We spoke on Monday, August 24th. Martha, Paul, thank you both for joining us. 
Thanks for Great having to be me. Here. Martha, let me start with you. We're six weeks into the new NAFTA era. The new CUSMA, Canada-US-Mexico agreement, took effect on July the 1st. And now here we are in another trade dispute with the United States. What on earth happened and why are we here when we're not supposed to be? <laughs> well, uh, on the heels of the CUSMA entering into force, you're quite right. We are finding ourselves uh, in another round of US-Canada trade wars. And this is in the context of an already challenging trade protectionist environment, uh, some somewhat strained trading relationships between Canada and the U.S., and of course also in the context of a global pandemic which has had in many uh, respects seismic impacts on supply chains and trade. Um, one would think that concluding such a landmark trade agreement would have invited more smooth trading policy opportunities. However, uh, a couple of weeks ago on August 6th, uh, U.S. President Donald Trump executed a reimposition of a 10% so-called national security tariff, which is chargeable on imports of certain aluminum types of products from Canada. And that took effect on August 16th, so those tariffs are now in effect. Um, it's important to remember that tariffs are actually taxes paid by importers. So despite some of the rhetoric that we have heard from the Trump administration where uh, the administration will impose a tariff on goods coming from another country and the rhetoric is that the, the other country's government pays for those tariffs, we heard a lot about that in the, in the context of China, that's actually not correct. It is the, in this case, it is the U.S. importer that's going to pay an additional tariff on aluminum goods, certain aluminum goods from Canada, and presumably pass that on to the ultimate consumer, meaning that goods in the U.S. will be more expensive. So they're, the, they're taxing their own people, in other words, in order to punish or impose some kind of trade restriction on other countries that are exporting goods to the United States. That's exactly right. And what uh, the administration has decided to do is to reinstate a 10% tariff on certain uh, unwrought aluminum articles from Canada. Um, and in doing so, the president cited claims that imports of aluminum from Canada had increased about 87 to 90 percent. And that increase in volume and value constituted a threat uh, to, quote unquote, national security. Um, and this this uh, position is often considered somewhat offensive to Canadian government, also to Canadian industry, because we like to think of ourselves as the most important trading partner to the U.S. and to suggest that trade in our goods constitutes national security to their domestic industry is challenging for both regulators and consumers to understand. Yeah, no, no kidding. But before we get into the specifics and, and what Canada has done in response, can you just help us understand how the U.S. can do this when we have a free trade agreement in place? I would have thought that by bringing into force the new North American Free Trade Agreement, the new CUSMA, that would preclude the United States from taking steps like this that are to the direct impediment of cross-border trade. Why, why isn't CUSMA a bar to measures like this by the United States? So the measures themselves were adopted um, by virtue of a domestic piece of U.S. legislation called the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. 
Um, there is a section in that act, uh, section 232, and that's why these tariffs have come to be known as section 232 tariffs. And that permits the US government to adopt tariffs or to repeal measures in order to encourage international trade if the president deems on the advice uh, from the Department of Commerce that certain articles being imported into the U.S. in such quantities or in such circumstances threaten to impair national security. And the trade agreement actually doesn't have a clear answer to domestic measures like the Trade Expansion Act in 62. So generally speaking, when Canada enters into free trade agree agreements like the CUSMA, there are certainly dispute uh, mechanisms that are included in these trade agreements. However, there's often carve-outs for national security uh, or domestic security reasons where a trading partner can go against either the actual um, legal or spirit of a treaty in order to protect its domestic industry or in order to protect national security. And the, the criticism, the common criticism of the way that the Trump administration has used Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act is that he, the, the argument is that the administration has effectively pigeonholed a trade issue into a national security issue, which would technically be carved out of the obligations under the CUSMA, um, similarly to the obligations as they were uh, under the old NAFTA, when these particular measures were also imposed by the Trump administration um, a couple of years ago. So apart from being offended by being branded as a national security threat, our, our exports of unwrought aluminum products at the very least, how is Canada responding to this latest measure by the United States? You, you also said it was a reimposition of, uh, of tariff measures. What, what, what has happened in the last couple of years uh, that is part of this same story? And, and how has Canada been playing the issue to date? So there were similar uh, tariffs imposed under the same section of the Trade Expansion Act um, over the, the, that's been happening over the last 24 months. And there was a, a trade war in, in the context of that imposition of tariffs. Um, and Canada and the U.S. was finally, we were finally able to come to an arrangement where the U.S. dropped those measures and Canada dropped the countermeasures that it had taken to sort of strike back as against the U.S. And they did so because it was important in order to finalize the negotiations for the CUSMA. Both countries had to agree to sort of bow down um, and, and stand down in connection with those initial tariffs. Uh, now, the response from Canada in connection with the reinstitution of 10% tariffs on uh, aluminum articles from Canada has been really swift, uh, in part because the both countries had made this arrangement in this agreement that they would, you know, each back off of, of this sort of tariff war in order to facilitate the finalization of the negotiations and in, in order to ensure that the CUSMA or the USMCA, as it's known in the States, would take effect and come into play in the best possible circumstances from a trade policy perspective between both countries. Um, Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland, for example, characterized the Trump administration uh, as the most protectionist in history and specifically relating to these new tariffs, described them as unnecessary and unwarranted. 
Um, and similarly, uh, from a provincial perspective, Doug Ford has also criticized these tariffs, calling them, you know, backstabbing and, and certainly unacceptable to Canada as a U.S. Uh, trading partner. And the result is that uh, twofold. Uh, in, from a provincial perspective, Ford has called upon Ontario residents to buy local, um, and that encourages sort of a more um, a, a more domestic source for supply as opposed to relying on the U.S., which could potentially mean a loss of sales for U.S. exporters into Canada. But perhaps more importantly, uh, Canada has indeed decided uh, and did so uh, almost immediately to to engage in countermeasures to sort of fight back against these tariffs and released a preliminary table of both aluminum and aluminum containing products that will be subject to a 10% surtax upon importing into Canada. And it's so we're not for, for the surtax for the goods coming into Canada, we're not just talking about raw aluminum materials. We're also talking about finished goods that Canadian importers bring, you know, quite frequently, uh, vehicle parts, equipment, metal furniture for offices, uh, aluminum cans used in the packaging of beverages. So, you know, there, there may be an increase in the cost of, of uh, alcoholic beverages and soft drinks, for example. So, so this is, um, you know, both good news from a Canadian perspective in that it shows that the government has taken swift action to try and, um, you know, pursue countermeasures as against these uh, measures that the U.S. has taken. But as we just talked about a few moments ago, Adam, the, the catch is that these will be taxes that Canadian importers pay on these U.S. goods coming right. in, meaning that their costs will be, um, you know, their costs will be higher and the cost to the Canadian consumer will also be higher. So why does it make sense? I mean, I, I'm going to turn things over to Paul in a second, bring him in about the Canadian political dimension to all of this. But if I'm the Canadian government, and if I know that the countermeasures that you're describing are going to increase the cost of these goods for Canadian consumers, why do I put those countermeasures in place? I mean, I, I get it that they're directed at the United States, but if we're paying for these countermeasures, why is it good for Canada? The the one of the main purposes of the countermeasures is to actually cause Canadian importers to rethink their options and their plans to import goods from the U.S. in order to effectively, um, I, I'm not necessarily going to say punish U.S. exporters, but to detract from their ability to access the Canadian market. Because if you are a Canadian importer and you can produce, you can uh, find a source of supply domestically for your goods. Uh, and you are turning away from that domestic supply in, in order to import those goods from the U.S., these additional tariffs will certainly have you rethink that decision. And the idea is that Canadian importers will look to domestic production and domestic supplies as opposed to continuing in contractual arrangements or importation arrangements with U.S. exporters. And the, from a political perspective, the list of goods on which the countermeasures tax will apply actually hits some of the most important states in the U.S. from a from a political perspective, and and the idea is that it will hurt uh, that it will hurt Trump from a political point of view. All right. Well, speaking of politics, let's bring in the former politician on the line. And Paul, if you're sitting in Ottawa, say you're the brand new finance minister who is still the Deputy Prime Minister and who still has the Canada-US 
portfolio as Christian Freeland now does. What is the government's play here? How do you, as a Canadian government that's facing the prospect of elections, maybe as er as early as this fall or sometime next year, how do you handle this volatile situation with our biggest trading partner in a way that is politically advantageous domestically, but more importantly, that protects the Canada-U.S. trade relationship in the middle of a pandemic when arguably it's more important than ever? Well, thanks. And, and actually, what I would be reminding everyone is a little bit of their history. Uh, there is a, a famous speech that uh, uh, Pierre Trudeau, Justin's father, Prime Minister Trudeau's father, gave in, I think it was 1969, when he was meeting Richard Nixon, and he coined uh, an expression that re references a very cranky elephant uh, living next to you is he I think the, the the phrase was living next to you is in some ways like sleeping with an elephant no matter how friendly and even tempered is the beast one is affected by every twitch and grunt <laughs> and so I think that's one of the things that most of us who have been in the political game are always reminded of is that you know these are bumper sticker politics where you know, this, we've become very much, particularly in this era between Trump and Trudeau, a little bit of, of, uh, uh, of reality TV. But Canadians are, well would remember, uh, those, of, those of us that have been around for a while, that John Diefenbaker's relationship, for example, with John Kennedy was very toxic. Uh, you, you know, there's a famous anecdote where Lyndon Johnson once picked Lester Pearson, Prime Minister Pearson, up by the lapel and shook him after Pearson criticized America's behavior in Vietnam. So there's a lot of these kinds of, of things that do spill over. And certainly this is, as Martha has quite accurately pointed out, this is primarily addressing some of the political issues that uh, President Trump is looking at for his re-election. And he's obviously paying attention to states where he thinks this will affect electoral college votes. But in the, at the end of the day, I don't think that the relationship is going to be as damaged as people think it will be. I think it makes great headlines. But I mean, Canada is a much more nimble and diverse country today than even 50 years ago. And Yes, our supply chain is connected and we do have these relationships, but you know, this is an election year for President Trump, but it's, you know, we, we also can't ignore the fact that President Trump appears to have walked away from a, a number of other institutions that are as important as the Canada-US relationship that basically have defined what we would refer to as post-war international order like NATO or the UN or the IMF and the World Bank. And, and so, and, and of course, in the backdrop of this pandemic, the World Health Organization. So this um, suspicion and name calling and, you know, having real effect on people's jobs and t which tariffs do, whether it's in aluminum or softwood lumber, um, these tensions are going to always be there. So that's sort of from a political perspective, what I'm sure that uh, Christia Freeland, uh, Prime, Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland now, and Minister of Finance Christia Freeland will be, will be obviously focused on, is to understand this in the larger context. 
Speaking of that larger context, you were, I believe, still in Parliament when Prime Minister Kretchen made the decision to keep Canada out of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003, or you had recently retired, I forget which. But in any event, when that happened, the Federal Conservative Party, who were the main opposition party then, as they are now, took the line that Canada was making a mistake, that they should be, uh, that the Canadian government should be more mindful of the relationship with the United States and not go out of its way to antagonize the Americans, which arguably Prime Minister Kretchen did. And history obviously bears out that Kretchen was on the right side of that decision, although you couldn't have known that necessarily uh, at the time, depends who you ask. In this case, it's a very different situation, a very different American government, a different Canadian government, and a minority parliament situation. Do you expect that there will be domestic political debates in Canada about Canada-U.S. trade and about the government's approach to dealing with the Trump administration? Well, I think that probably the integration between Canada and the United States from a media perspective has, if anything, been much more significant over the last, I will say, the last five years. And again, depending on what part of the country that you live, um, it will have some political impact. So obviously, uh, when you look at what's happening with Wexit, uh, you know, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, but more in Alberta, uh, and to some degree, the British Columbia, people are paying more attention to the Canada-US news, uh, but to what's going on in the United States. And some of that, what I call those political bumper stickers, of isolationism or nationalism is having some impact. But at the end of the day, um, I think Martha has hit on something very important. We, we're, we're a country of communities, whether it's Ontario and Quebec, which is more where the population is focused. I think you're going to find that uh, in Canadian terms, uh, it's good politics to stand up to the Americans and certainly with the Premier Ford aligning more directly with Prime Minister Trudeau and obviously Premier Legault as well, those are two significant population, representative of two right. significant population groups of political of a different political stripe. And I think that that is not bad politics for Prime Minister Trudeau to stand up to uh, any perceived or real bullying. Martha, shifting from the politics back toward the trade policy piece of this and to the, the trade law aspect of it, if I'm a Canadian business and my supply chain involves transactions over the U.S. border or I am an importer of some of these aluminum products that have been placed on the countermeasures list by the Canadian government, what am I looking for from the Canadian government in terms of its approach to the United States in diffusing this particular uh, trade situation? And what is what does a win look like for me and how do we get there? So I think one of the most important pieces for Canadian importers to consider if they are going to be impacted by the tariffs uh, is to participate in the consultation process that the government has put into place with uh, responses due on the 6th of September. That's an opportunity for Canadian industry uh, and for Canadian, um, you know, sole businesses alike to inform the government on how the proposed countermeasure surtax will impact them. 
uh, and to provide further context on how either specific businesses or specific industries um, within Canada could be um, more negatively impacted than others as a result of these Canadian countermeasures. Uh, and similarly, it's as important to um, promote the arguments that Canadian industry might have to the Canadian government uh, if it is supporting the notion that Canada must retaliate in connection with the U.S. measures. I, I don't think there's much question that uh, there needs to be a uh, surtax imposed on certain U.S. goods because I'm not sure uh, politically how we could get our heads around allowing the U.S. to take these measures and then not retaliate, retaliating in some form. And, you know, a tit-for-tat surtax war tends to be how trading partners do it. Uh, but if we are looking beyond the scope of the tariffs and this current trade war that's been now uh, ongoing for a few weeks, I think what Canadian importers uh, would be wise to do is to look at opportunities that they have outside of the U.S., uh, in particular to consider Europe, for example, because we can leverage European relationships in a way that our U.S. counterparts cannot. They do not have a free trade arrangement with European Union, and we do. And so under the CETA, Canadian importers have a very wide uh, breadth of advantages for importation of goods from the EU on a duty-free basis, whereas the U.S. counterparts do not. And if one of the major reasons that Canadian importers engage with the U.S., besides the proximity and the geography and sort of this, the same social structures and contractual structures, if one of the main reasons is to be able to leverage the old NAFTA and now the, the uh, CUSMA, um, in order to bring in goods duty-free, Canadians can also do that with other jurisdictions in the world, like I, like I said, for example, from the EU. So it, this is a very important time for Canadian um, industry to continue to diversify their supply chain. That is an exercise that has started um, as a result uh, of COVID because Canadians were forced into it, like the rest of the world has been forced into it. But in terms of a win, I think it's important to distinguish between the policy perspective and what the actual data shows us from a trading relationship point of view. So right. from a policy perspective, you know, these measures are more examples of, of a, a long list of trade irritants that are now existing between Canada and the U.S. at a particularly vulnerable time. But if we look at the actual trade data for the last quarter, Global Affairs released a study a couple of weeks ago that sort of tallied up our relationship with the U.S., even in the context of trade irritants. And in fact, the data indicates that the impact of the pandemic and the trade policies on Canada's trade with the U.S., um, you know, it varies tremendously by U.S. state, but on the whole, the trade relationship is still quite strong. Um, and so the while the relationship is especially vulnerable right now in like top export destinations for Canada, like, for example, Michigan, because of the automotive products that that we export there, while that relationship is especially vulnerable, 
On the whole, the data indicates that Canada and U.S. businesses still are engaging in, you know, meaningful, impactful international trade arrangements. And so it's important that Canadian industry um, remember that while the policies um, feel, you know, quite significant, and, and they are, certainly if you're in the aluminum industry, that's going to feel significant because you're going you're gonna to feel that from a policy and from a pocketbook perspective. Right. But for the, for the generic importer, trading is still happening with the U.S. and it's still very strong. So on that subject, and on the subject of rebuilding the economy, both of Canada and the United States, after this pandemic slowdown and shutdown, when businesses look at diversifying their supply chains, at leveraging, as you say, Canada's free trade agreement with the European Union, an advantage that our American counterparts don't have, is there a potential here, given that the Democratic challenger to President Trump, Vice President Joe Biden, is campaigning on a Buy American platform as well, and there is potential for greater retrenchment by the United States in favor of domestic buying in order to shore up the U.S. economy coming out of the pandemic. Are we expecting to see, or are you expecting to see, I should say, a broader realignment in Canada's trade relationships, or, or are we going to come out of this thing with as strong and as, as, as deep a relationship with the United States, notwithstanding all of these irritants, as we had coming into it? I think that what remains to be seen is how a potential Biden administration plays out, as Paul mentioned earlier, how the U.S. is going to interplay with global institutions, and in particular, the World Trade Organization. So the, the WTO is, in fact, in a, largely in a state of crisis right now. Uh, because there have been, um, it, there's an inability for the appellate body to, you know, render decisions because there are not enough folks on that on the body to actually render these decisions. And so, uh, my my guess, and I, I'll be quite interested to hear Paul's perspective on this. My guess is that, um, you know, to the extent that um, that you know, potentially President Biden uh, plays along with this Buy American platform, Canada will um, will do something similar, as uh, Premier Ford indicated in connection with the aluminum tariffs. He wants folks to buy domestically. You know, that is a policy line that we can, uh, that we can coordinate on our end and that we can follow suit on. Where, where the key distinction, I think, will be as between a potential Biden administration versus the current U.S. administration is I suspect that there would be a, um, a desire to reintegrate the U.S. into international organizations like the WTO um, in order to re-cement uh, the U.S. policy um, and position on an international level. Yeah, I, I agree, um, Martha. The the challenge, no doubt, for Vice President uh, Biden at the moment is specifically the difficulty that he's got to get elected. So his Buy America platform is exactly what he needs to have as a, you know, sort of political meat for the 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 hinterland of you know the, to get those electoral college votes that he needs. But um, I think that the trade numbers are absolutely, um, they, the trade numbers themselves do speak volumes for the fact that our communities are so integrated. Uh, you know, you look at oil and gas and energy and softwood lumber, uh, you know, yeah, there are, we've had tariff disputes that have gone on forever. But uh, I think that the, the 
Just having a, a civil political dialogue will be incredibly important. When you look at prime ministers in the past, like Prime Minister Skretchen or Mulroney, uh, who had very deep uh, personal relationships with President Reagan or, Pres or uh, uh, you know, President Clinton uh, or President Bush, they were, you know, relationships do matter. And when you realize that President Trump is really not having, you know, relationships with many other democratically elected leaders, even within NATO, it's a time for pause. It's a time also for us to understand that from a trade perspective, this these cross-border issues are minor, minor in relative large terms over the volume of time between our two countries as it relates to trade. When you speak of, of pausing or, or taking a step back, we are in an election, or they are in an election, I should say, in the United States, and we may be in an election in Canada in the not-too-distant future either. If you're a business and, and trade is a big part of your bottom line, you've got workers whom you're supporting and you're concerned about markets because of the, uh, the pandemic situation and the economy slowing down generally, what, what can one do now, both with the Canadian government and with the American government, given the political climate, in order to ensure that one's voice is heard and one's priorities are acted upon, Paul? Well, I, I mean, Martha and I will tell you that we hear from our clients almost every day uh, throughout both Canada, on both sides of the border, uh, where they're tr constantly trying to gain attention of decision makers. And one of the challenges that you, you just never know where a political issue is going to come out. I was, uh, I, I was thinking of the Helms-Burton legislation, uh, Adam, that you would remember from watching uh, where all of a sudden uh, a piece of legislation came out that affected British Columbia and New Brunswick, which is my home province, on sugar. And this piece of legislation came from absolutely nowhere, but it was directed to a Florida constituency of Cuban voters because it was to ban uh, Cuban raw sugar into being refined into Canada and from Cana any Canadian businesses doing business in the United States. I use that as an example from the 1990s, which was when President Clinton was in power and, who, and he could do nothing about it because the Senate in the United States was running with this quite random position. And um, I think that's the kind of stuff that we need to be very mindful of in assessing uh, what can happen out of absolutely nowhere. When, uh, when Helms-Burton came in, Paul, you were the parliamentarian who helped bring together what was known as the Sugar Caucus in Parliament to advance the Canadian <laughs> position. Are, are, are we going to see a, an aluminum caucus in the, in the Parliament well, when things come back? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Martha and I, we've seen that happening in, in, with some of our clients right now, where you, you, you get members of parliament from all political stripes. And the Sugar Caucus was a great example. But I actually picked up the idea of the Sugar Caucus by watching how American politics works. Because Paul Zed, the member of parliament from St. John at the time, wasn't going to do something alone. He had to have a woman from Quebec who had 
uh, her constituency affected, uh, a conservative member of parliament from uh, British Columbia who had his constituency affected. And so we ended up with the Bloc Quebecois, um, myself and and uh, one of the, the uh, members of the Reform Party at the time going to Washington. So that sometimes is also very healthy for the Canadian political uh, climate where we come together on issues that are that are germane to whether it's aluminum or softwood lumber or water and oil and gas you pick the subject area sure and if if i could just jump in for one moment dovetailing on what paul said uh the uh, if if we're looking at um you know proactive steps that canadian industry can do to ensure that its needs uh, and obligations as well in terms of international trade are recognized by Canada in the context of this U.S. election and potentially uh, a, a Canadian election coming up. This is actually the time for advocacy. Um, and one of the things I've seen in the context of my practice over the last six months, in particular since the pandemic has hit, is the importance of business councils and industry associations. Uh, they have been on the forefront helping their members, um, whether it is, you know, commercial importers, whether it is a, pr a producer's industry association, whether it's a chamber of commerce, helping Canadian industry understand, you know, how they are supposed to manage supply chains and domestic obligations like managing employees, going on shutdown, all these things in the pandemic. This is when these associations have been so important. And this is a good time for small and medium size importers as well as large importers. But I emphasize small and medium size importers because those are the importers that actually pay for the paychecks of you know many, many Canadians, most right. Canadians. This is the time for them to go to their associations um, and, and asked to put together some submissions. Right now, um, it, there, there were a couple of articles over the last week or so to the, um, you know, articulating that it, it looks as though because of some of the new, um, because of the new portfolio that uh, Minister Freeland has taken on, Trade Minister Mary Ng is gonna be potentially derailing, dealing directly with her U.S. counterpart, which is the, uh, who is the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthouser. And then similarly, Foreign Affairs Minister uh, François-Philippe Champagne will also be dealing with his equivalent Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And in, you know, in the prior context, it was generally Minister Freeland who was handling those relationships. But if the Trade Minister and the Foreign Affairs Minister have a more direct route to their U.S. counterparts, um, this is a good opportunity for them to deliver important key messaging from industry in Canada that can be packaged up and sent to them from chambers of uh, commerce, business councils, and, and industry associations. So speaking of, uh, of reading articles and following these developments, as you're reading the newspaper, the, the, I don't know if it's a physical newspaper, is that a thing anymore? But if you're, as you're reading news <laughs> articles over the coming weeks and months, Martha, starting with you, what will you be looking for as indications of where this story is going and where the Canada-US trade relationship is evolving to? Are there particular landmarks or, or distant early warning signs that you will see and think, aha, things are going in the right direction or things are going in the wrong direction, we really better, better double down on our European connections. What, what are you watching for? 
I, I think the first uh, and arguably most important piece will be the result of the U.S. election uh, in November. Um, if Trump is reelected, that probably means another four years of what one might argue to be very protectionist trade policies. Uh, and if you are a Canadian in business, what that probably means is you're going to be on guard for potential additional trade irritants that impact your supply chain. And that's where you might say to yourself, I, I really do need to focus on diversification. That, that will be sort of, I think, one of the main, um, one of the main um, pieces in terms of how we can look forward and strategize. Uh, from a from a practical perspective, I think the other piece to look at is to consider, um, you know, where we might be in six to twelve months with the pandemic. Because right now, um, the the border is certainly open to free trade of goods, but it is not open to um, to you know individuals traveling back and forth. We still have restrictive um, border controls as it relates to people coming in and out of Canada and going in and out of the U. And that directly impacts uh, that directly impacts business strategy. If you are not in an essential business, but you want to develop business in the U.S., and you feel that uh, you know appearing in person will actually assist in your business meetings, etc., those those uh, strategies are going to continue to be very challenging. So if if the if we are able to get our hands and heads around this pandemic effectively over the next six to 12 months, I think that will mean good things for our border. Um, if we are looking from a Canadian perspective, uh, it seems that based on uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's recent uh, discussion, when, when uh, Parliament sort of reopens, there's going to be a real emphasis on greening of the economy. Um, and right. of course, on the economy itself. And in order to green our economy, we absolutely need the buy-in of the U.S. And so that is going to be very important uh, to keep those relationships as as open as possible in order for the government to accomplish what it sets out to do. And and on the other end of the political spectrum, I might also add that last night uh, in, in Aaron O'Toole's victory speech as leader of the opposition, now the uh, the head of the Conservative Party, the leader of the Conservative Party, he, he specifically mentioned the aluminum tariffs and the challenges that um, he would be looking at from a trade perspective moving forward too. So I, I think in a crystal ball, it's going to be a combination of what happens in the U.S. election and what happens with our borders because of the pandemic. Paul, what do you see when you look into your crystal ball? Huh. Well, when I look into my crystal ball in New Brunswick or in the Atlantic provinces, I always look south. But we also remind um, everyone that uh, one of the things this particular presidency um, has reminded all of us is that, yes, this is the longest undefended border in the world. And we sort of have, particularly out of the Atlantic, uh, you know, a lot of our cousins are, are down in the States and a lot of the people that settled in Atlantic Canada are actually people that remained, wanted to remain loyal to the crown, uh, but they came from the old Boston Tea Party days. Now, against that backdrop, I think people really see the Northeast as this one large trading block, but unfortunately, um, as Martha quite accurately stated, we have to, as a country, look for other trading areas. So whether that's Europe or South America or the United Kingdom, 
which now may have new opportunities as a result of their attempt to leave uh, you know, the vote for Brexit, those may lead our economies into a new place. Um, I think you're quite right, though, that the U.S. has a, a bit of a hangover no matter what happens with President Trump. If President, uh, Vice President Biden is successful, there will be this you know, perceived direction to stay within isolationism. I'm not surprised that, that Aaron O'Toole mentioned tariffs, aluminum tariffs, because it's trendy and popular uh, and partisan. But I'm also wanting to pay attention a little bit to the fact that Canada, while all of that trade war is going on, is continuing to excel in companies like Shopify or companies like BlackBerry, uh, where cybersecurity continues to be incredibly important and the development of our, of our brains so that, and the innovation that occurs as a result of those things, I think those are the things that Canadians will want to continue to focus on with the, the world-class technology that we are developing because of our open immigration policy. And Martha's quite right. If you need to get to some place uh, the establishment of, of, you know, certainly Vancouver and Toronto as tech centers of excellence, and even in my home province of Fredericton, where cybersecurity has become very important, I think those are the future jobs that we can be looking for. And I think that's where we as Canadians need to continue to build, develop, and grow. We'll leave it there. Thank you both very much for your time. Paul, Martha, Always we'll a pleasure. look forward to speaking again. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Adam. Adam. Thanks, Martha. Thanks, Paul. Martha Harrison is a partner in McCarthy Tatro's International Trade and Investment Law Group, and Paul Zed is counsel and a strategic advisor at McCarthy Tatro. This has been Episode 20 of Law in the Time of COVID-19. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. We also hope you'll send us your suggestions for future episodes. We want to talk about what you want to hear about. You can reach me on Twitter at, at Adam Goldenberg or by email at agoldenberg at mccarthy.ca. Pour plus de contenu de McCarthy Tetro, ne manquez pas notre balado, Le droit au temps de la COVID-19, animé par ma collègue Christelle Chevalier. Law in the Time of COVID-19 is produced by Chloe Thomas and edited by Abby Stafford and Miriam Veilleur. Our researcher for this episode was Emile Stanka, a summer student in McCarthy Tetro's Toronto office who is about to start his final year of a joint degree program at the Western University Faculty of Law and the Ivy Business School. Special thanks to Lara Nathans, Trevor Lawson, Judith McKay, Elizabeth Burks, Ali Adams, Tommy Barbieri, Kathleen Hogan, Taryn Hunter, Andrea Watson, Matilda Kramertz, and the entire team here at McCarthy Tetro. Not literally here, of course, but you know what I mean. Make sure you check out our firm's COVID-19 hub for business leaders, which you can reach from the main page of our website at www.mccarthy.ca. This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. Thanks for listening, and please, wash your hands.